Just a note for listeners before we get started with the book's introduction. This introduction was written in 1975, and the last few paragraphs refer to a rail environment in the U.S., which has changed quite a bit since then. All right, that said, let's get started. Episode 3, Introduction On the drizzling morning of October 29, 1963, Bulldozers, jackhammers, and a giant crane moved into New York's Pennsylvania Station to begin a $10 million demolition of the classical terminal. The weather matched the mood of the members of the Action Group for Better Architecture parading before the station in protest, their arms banded in black. Although urban soot and grime now darkened its once pristine pink granite walls, For 56 years, this symbol of the great railroad's power had dominated seven acres in the heart of Manhattan. Modeled after the Roman baths of Caracalla, with a concourse longer than the nave of St. Peter's, a vaulted glass and steel ceiling 130 feet high, and a grand staircase more than 40 feet wide, The arrogant monument to train travel was doomed. Just another job, said Foreman John Rezin, as he watched the crane slowly lower the first of six 5,700-pound eagles from its perch above the entrance ledge. At the turn of the century, the $150 million project that brought the Pennsylvania into New York through tunnels under the Hudson and East Rivers into the magnificent station was regarded as the eighth wonder of the world, an engineering and architectural marvel, testifying to the dominance of the locomotive engine. In 1900, America ran on rails. Fifty years later, the country moved by automobile, truck, and airplane. Wasted space was the real estate agent's appraisal of Pennsylvania Station. Traffic managers, equally pragmatic, decided that the terminal did not provide efficient dispersal of people. The handling of 200,000 passengers is much more important to me, said the Pennsylvania's New York manager. The passengers must sacrifice the misty, romantic, if somewhat decayed, splendor of a grand gateway, which had promised to make a ceremony of every journey to a truncated station topped by office buildings and a huge sports complex, the third Madison Square Garden. By the spring of 1964, only the shell of the station remained, although outside the 84 Doric columns still masked the desecration within. By April of that year, the mellow, creamy interior walls constructed of the same Tivoli marble used to build Rome's Colosseum in the first century A.D., had disappeared. Now the grand stairway would fall beneath the wreckers' hammers. Few passengers, scurrying through the noise and confusion to catch their trains in the unchanged underground burrow, stopped to watch the crew remove the bronze statue of the man who had conceived this architectural wonder. Alexander Johnston Cassatt, 7th President of the Pennsylvania Railroad, 
1899-1906. That statue, which had flanked the stairway since the station's dedication in 1910, accompanied thousands of tons of rubble to the dump heap in Hackensack Meadow. James McRae, Cassatt's successor, in dedicating the station and the statue, had remarked, As the years roll around, the greater will be the tribute to Mr. Cassatt's genius. The years have rolled around to bring Alexander J. Cassatt and the Pennsylvania, which he commanded, onto the dump heap of history. America rode into the 20th century on rails, and no one man contributed more to the growth of the nation's most vital industry than Cassatt, a man whose prominence rivaled that of the giants with whom he did business. Vanderbilt, Morgan, Carnegie, Rockefeller. Today, his reputation, his Roman station, his railroad, have reached the end of the line, with no return trip scheduled. Alexander Johnston Cassatt knew how to run a railroad, whether into New York or across any of the Pennsylvania's 11,000 miles of track from Philadelphia to the Mississippi. He had learned his trade in the backwoods, Clay Hills of Georgia, as a humble rodman before the Civil War. By his 30th birthday, he had risen to be general superintendent of the Pennsylvania. In those nine years, he absorbed the basic fundamentals of railroading. He ran an engine over the horseshoe curve in western Pennsylvania, spent hours with wrench and torch amid the smoky, dank yards of Altoona, investigating an air brake, correcting a faulty coupling device, experimenting with steel ties. Cassatt mastered every aspect of the steam locomotive and the tracks on which it ran, not just on the drawing board, but in the yard and on the line. His command of the practical problems of railroading was exceeded only by his grasp of the ledger and the annual report. He knew what to build, how and when to build it. And he knew how to pay for it, too. He learned early to be a company man to suspect and thwart any rival who threatened his line. Those rivals were knowledgeable, determined, and hungry. The prize was incalculable. More than 75 million people needed the goods and services the locomotives could bring to their door. Where the horse and wagon took months to cross plains and desert, the locomotive spanned the continent in days, linking every hamlet and city to an economy which burgeoned fantastically. No single factor was more responsible for opening up America, for driving it into the industrial age, than the growth and expansion of the railroad. By rare good fortune, allied with his own ability to see and seize the opportunity, Cassatt arrived when the locomotive became the paramount engine of national prosperity. If the Civil War had tested the new transportation giant, the decades before the century closed proved the pervading power of the iron monster which propelled America into the industrial leadership of the world. Fortunes were made and lost in the wake of railroad expansion, 
nurtured by a permissive political and business climate in which machines were omnipotent, men expendable. Cheap labor to build roads and man trains was always available. The horde of Irish immigrants pouring through New York eagerly fought for the low-paying jobs on the railroad. Soon they were joined by Poles, Italians, Chinese, all seeking advancement by trying their fortunes to the rails. Rockefeller's oil empire, Morgan's banking trust, Carnegie's steel hegemony rested on those same rails inching across the land from the eastern marketplaces to the Pacific. By 1900, the railroad pervaded American life, altering it forever. Few prophets foretold that a bicycle mechanic working in a Detroit back alley or two brothers experimenting with gliders on the flat salt marshes of Carolina would overturn the dictatorship of the railroad. Certainly, Cassatt saw no cloud on a future to which he had tied his own fortunes. He believed that his own carefully tended company would wheel his country into a new era of prosperity and dominance and bent every effort to that end. His railroad, every railroad, must be protected, encouraged, regulated, its property insured from the inroads of greedy exploiters, whether they be venal politicians, ruthless shippers, demanding employees, or the uneducated public. The prerogatives of the men who built and manned those trains came far behind expansion and development. Rights and privileges of the working man were luxuries that Cassatt and every other determined American industrialist could ill afford. Cassatt and his fellow barons were, above all, men of property, with all the virtues and vices of Galsworthy's Soames Forsyth. They were as convinced of the sanctity of property as the founding fathers who knew it to be as important as life or liberty. We must understand, if we cannot defend, the sins committed by these adventurers in the name of property and their drive to acquire it. Free land was fast disappearing along the frontier, which the railroad steadily eroded. But free profits, unhampered by government fiat or ideals of social justice, were there for the taking, and most envied the man who could seize a giant share. Cassatt yielded to no rival in his desire to bring those profits home to the Pennsylvania and its supporters. In an arena which saw the untrammeled rise of Drew, Fisk, and Gold, Cassatt's methods were as ruthless, although he could show an unusual tolerance and compassion. Under his strong hand, the Pennsylvania Railroad reached its apogee. During his years as president, the company made its greatest gains in capital expansion, in improvements, in mileage, in passenger and freight traffic. From 1899 to 1906, the Pennsylvania's gross income rose from $71 million to $146 million, while his employees received a 10% raise in wages. He increased the trackage to 11,774 miles and added 40,000 new locomotives to the road. He never feared the money lords or the dangers of financing, which proved so detrimental to other railroad executives. All his reforms and innovations cost money, 
millions of dollars, but he recapitalized the railroad with $200 million worth of gilt-edged stocks and bonds, while raising his stockholders' dividends by 2%. For his 40,000 investors, Cassatt's reign meant sound returns in a company which faced the future with imagination and excitement. And those tunnels promised even more profit and prestige. No wonder Cassatt was hailed as an innovator, a manager without peer, a practical railroad man whose genius commanded respect. He had his detractors, Andrew Carnegie, unmindful of his own relentless march from bobbin boy to steelmaster, called Cassatt a railroad imperialist whose acts provoked admiration in his arch enemies. Carnegie wanted preferential and illegal treatment from the Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh citizens, great and small, also had no love for the Pennsylvania president who refused to let rival roads into the city. His own colleagues found Cassatt's imaginative financing too frightening to swallow. Even the press of his own city turned against him in the final months of his life. The journals of the day were quick to accuse him of arrogance, indifference to criticism, and even of corruption, feathering his own nest at the expense of independent shippers. To friends and foes alike, Cassatt offered no excuses. Neither tragedy nor triumph disturbed his outer reserve. Any attempt to penetrate his privacy, he rebuffed firmly. And after his death, his widow discouraged all who would defend him through an assessment of his life and work. He craved obscurity. And in the end, that was his reward. What was he really like behind that unapproachable desk in his Broad Street office? Naturally shy and reserved, when he left the yards and boardroom behind, he retired into the inviolability of his family circle. No hint of scandal ever marred his personal life. If he found need of the distractions so lustily embraced by less disciplined men, that story remains unknown and untold. Devoted to his wife and indulgent with his children, he found in his domestic circle whatever relaxation he required. Well-born, well-bred, well-educated, well-endowed, Cassatt never suffered the experiences which shaped a Carnegie or a Rockefeller. He was born with a sufficiency of this world's goods and easily acquired more to satisfy the regal style in which he lived. For all his respect for property, and it was considerable, he was not greedy. He enjoyed the life of a country square, the thoroughbred horses, the four sumptuous mansions, the yacht, the yearly trips to Europe. Yet Cassatt had few equals in the thrust and parry of the marketplace, and when he finally achieved the presidency of the Pennsylvania, at an age when most men would be content to retire, he threw himself into the demands of his position with energy and talent. He embodied, then, all the attributes so dear to Americans. Hard-working, hard-headed, inventive, he pushed his railroad into the forefront of the American industrial scene, commanded attention by his sheer genius, and bequeathed 
the greatest transportation engine the country has ever seen. A handsome man of upright stature, clear complexion, piercing blue eyes, and chestnut hair turning to white. Cassatt looked every inch the aristocrat, embodying dignity and success. Striding down the streets of New York on his way to inspect his tunnel project, he conveyed, even to the casual observer, a picture of strength and discipline. Socially impeccable, financially secure, professionally renowned, Cassatt represented every attribute Philadelphia had long admired in its men of affairs. A member of every prominent club, a sportsman, a supporter of proper charitable and cultural institutions, Cassatt earned the respect of the city, but he never really became a Philadelphian, never totally embraced by the sedate, parochial, proper attitudes dear to it. Always he looked beyond Broad Street to a larger vision. He saw his railroad carrying the nation's goods and people forward into a new era. America would serve the world and profit from it, and Cassatt was convinced that the motive power of this ascendancy would be the railroad. His Pennsylvania must be the best line of all. Romantic, his conception of his railroad and its role. Short-sighted, too, perhaps, he never realized the competition inherent in the automobile or airplane. How could another combustion machine replace what he had spent his life improving, protecting, expanding? Safe, conservative, patient in decision, slow of judgment, but capable of revolutionary action and determination to see the job done, Cassatt combined conflicting qualities of temperament and talent. His career was not without drama, even controversy, but his natural inclination subdued any flamboyance. He escaped the notoriety of his fellow robber barons. His railroad never earned the hatred of its users while he directed its progress. The Pennsylvania, under Cassatt, earned the respect and devotion it enjoyed, a legacy of service which outlasted the man responsible. Seventy years have passed since his death, since those innovative years when the New York tunnels and the Pennsylvania Station rose in triumph in Manhattan. His railroad merged with its rival and then disappeared entirely, sunk under a burden of mismanagement, chicanery, competition, and bankruptcy. Replacing the dignity and community of the Pennsylvania is a faceless bureaucracy the government-controlled Amtrak and Conrail. Like the clipper ship, the canal barge, the covered wagon, the horse and buggy, trains are vanishing. In the northeastern corridor of America and spasmodically across the land, trains still lumber along eroding tracks, but more often nostalgia rides the trains than commuters or freight. The safest, most economical, least ecologically damaging mode of transport, the locomotive has been forced to cede its role as common carrier. Only a few romantics yearn for the revival of the train as the kingpin of transportation. The president of General Motors, or Ford, now represents the epitome of industrial fame. Who can name the head of an American railroad today?
Alexander Johnston Cassatt evokes no memories of those days when America rode the rails. He would not be disturbed by such obscurity, but his name should not be forgotten, if only because of the lessons he taught. His problems were ours. Competition, financing, labor strife, government interference, creating then, as now, obstacles to efficiency and service. His expert direction enabled the railroad to rise above them all. He laid the foundations for a transportation system which could alleviate our energy crisis, move our exploding people and goods triumphantly ahead. Another transportation dilemma is upon us, but no cassat looms on the horizon to offer solutions and inspire progress. Cassatt's sister, Mary, the artist upon whom the family's fame now rests, delivered the ultimate judgment. My brother helped build the country, and in any other country he would be surrounded with respect. Not even remembrance has been his due. Alexander Cassatt deserves better. <laughs>